Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein and Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein and Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. In the next hour, though, we have a lot of people who have uh, virtually come into the studio with me. I am going to do the second round of our 20 PhDs in around about 20 minutes for you. We've got 20 people who have uh, applied during the week to be part of this. It was a very large group of people applied, and this was the 20 that got through, the ones we thought were most interesting. And we're going to talk about their research just for a very short period of time. They come from all over Australia. In fact, they come from all over the world. We've got one from the UK on the line. I think it's about 2 a.m. So we're hoping that uh, she manages to stay awake for the broadcast. But um, we're going to get straight into it. We're going to do 10. Then we're going to take a break for some music so that you can all take a breath and get a coffee. And then we're going to do another 10. And then later in the show, we'll be talking to uh, some of my regular co-hosts about some of the science news that's hitting the world. So. So without further ado, I'm going to start off with our first PhD student for today. Her name is Hannah Savage. Hannah is from the University of Melbourne. Good morning, Hannah. Can you hear us? I sure can. It's great to talk to you, Hannah. Now, you work on how we respond, how our brains and our, our minds respond to threats and safety. Tell us a bit about that. That's, I mean, at the moment, it's really interesting. We're all under threat. Yeah, definitely. So my work aims to uncover how our brain responds flexibly to changing sources of threat and safety within our environment. So all around us are things that we perceive to be potential threats and things we perceive as safe, and these are constantly changing. So take a bus, for example. You might consider it a threat if it almost hits you as you run across the road, but it's relatively safe to catch the next bus to get you to the shops. Mm. You see, the same thing can switch from threat to safety and vice versa, and it's really important that we can regulate our responses to these changes in threat and safety signals for us to be able to function optimally. Mm. And do we, uh, presumably we, we get better at this as we get older? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yep. There's uh, <laughs> evidence that uh, this process might occur differently as we age, in fact, yeah. Mm. So um, hopefully we're, we're all in this period at the moment at our various ages on the line right now where we're pretty good at responding to this. But um, I, I can imagine it goes down as you get much older, just as it would build up as you're, you're an infant. Yeah, well, the focus of my research is actually uh, that this process might uh, be disrupted in people with anxiety disorders. Uh, we see that people with anxiety disorders often get stuck on that uh, threat-related mm. re threat thinking and inappropriately generalise that threat-related responding. Yep, yep. Thank you, Hannah. Great to hear about that research. Sounds really Thank good. You. Next up is Caleb Dawson from the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute for Medical Research. Morning, Caleb. How are you going? Morning, Shane. Good, thanks. Now, you work on 3D fluorescence imaging and you look at breast uh, tissue structure um, and, and you've found some really cool stuff there. First of all, quickly, 3D fluorescence imaging, what is that? That's where we stain the breast tissue for with different fluorescent dyes. And then the microscope can see these different dyes and uh, we can reconstruct 3D models of the breast tissue to see how the cells are interacting and how they're behaving. Now, you found something interesting in, in looking at this particular tissue that hasn't been found before. Yeah, so early on in my PhD, I used different stains for the breast duct cells and the immune cells. And then when I did the 3D imaging, we were really shocked to see immune cells embedded within the duct wall that hadn't been seen before. 
So this completely changed the direction of my PhD. Mm. And actually, we just published this study, which is really exciting. Mm. I think there's nothing better than a PhD that changes direction, because that's where the, the really cool stuff's happening that no one knew about before. And um, this must have spurred a whole new range of uh, research, presumably, as well. Yeah, uh, it was really daunting, actually, because when we first found them, we, I really didn't know anything about immune cells. So I had to read up a lot. Uh, but it was really satisfying to take this discovery right from the, that initial observation all the way through to knowing what these cells are and what they do and why they're important. Mm. Look, it's cool stuff. Uh, thanks so much, Caleb. And it's cool that you get to use those um, 3D fluorescence uh, things. I saw some of your videos via your, your Twitter feed, and they're, they're pretty cool looking, cool stuff. So thanks so much for chatting to us today. Thanks, Shane. Thanks for having me. Next up is Georgie Buckley from Swinburne University. Georgie, can you hear me? Yeah, I can. I'm really excited to be here this morning. It's great to have you. Now, um, you're looking in particular, I guess, with uh, this area of um, eating disorders or disordered eating, I guess is the term you use, um, looking at current and former athletes. What do we mean by disordered eating? Oh, great question. Um, so eating, uh, the attitudes we have towards eating occur along a spectrum. So on one side of the spectrum, we have a really positive relationship with food, whereas on the other side of the spectrum, we have clinical eating disorders. So I'm looking at that part that falls just before that clinical eating disorder area called disordered eating. And what we're finding is that athletes have really high, high rates of disordered eating, um, which I think is really interesting because often we put athletes almost on this pedestal mm. of health. And when we start to explore really below the iceberg, what's going on for them mentally and how they relate to food and all these kinds of pressures that are unique for athletes, we see that there's, you know, a little bit of disruption there. And um, what we're finding, we're about to publish a paper looking specifically at what's been going on in, uh, during this period of time in COVID. We're finding that 40% of athletes, both, both current and former, have experienced a much worse relationship with food and worsened body image. Oh, wow. That's that's an interesting statistic for all those athletes out there. I like to think of myself as slightly athletic, and I'm going to blame that on my eating problems over the, the lockdown. I think uh, we've, all, we've all suffered a little bit, but it's interesting to hear that the ones we held on the pedestal, <clears throat> excuse me, are the ones that uh, uh, are being affected the most. Thanks so much, Georgie. Great to chat to you. Bye. Thank you. Next up is Karina Saxby from Monash University. Karina, how are you going? Can you hear me? Yep, good. Thanks, Jane. Great to be here. It's great to talk to you. Now, you're looking at how certain sexual minorities um, are uh, experiencing healthcare and their interactions with health and how that stigmatization can affect their, I suppose, how they engage with the health system or the health system engages with them. Tell us more. Yeah, exactly. So um, it's pretty well known that I guess sexual minorities globally and here in Australia have worse health outcomes than their heterosexual counterparts. So kind of because of these persisting health inequalities, it's really important to try and understand how they're interacting with the healthcare system and, and using healthcare services, particularly primary and kind of preventative healthcare. Um, so one of the things that we look at and that's particularly interesting in this space is that when sexual minorities more frequently experience stigmatization, discrimination, they're more likely to be in poorer health. Um, and up until recently, it wasn't really known how this might in turn affect their healthcare use. Mm. Um, and recently, what we've found is that by looking at census linked to admin data and healthcare use, we've found that when you look at those areas that um, are kind of 
more stigmatised. We see that sexual minorities in these regions actually use less GP services, use less primary health care, but they're more likely to be using um, kind of mental health-related treatment, so nervous system scripts antidepressants, um, and they're also more likely to report having a disability and things like that. Mm. So it's an, uh, yet another area where we have to do more to help minority groups uh, access what they need. And, and it sounds to me like part of it's systemic, part of it's individuals treating them differently. There's a whole range of things in that. A big project. Uh, good luck with that, Karina. Yeah, great. Thanks. Excellent work. Thank you. Next up is Fernando Altamirano. Fernando, can you hear me? I can hear you. Thank you for having me. Look, it's great to talk to you. Working in one of these areas just scares the crap out of me, which is the idea of people getting infections in intensive care units. And you're working on a very different approach to attacking that. Tell us about that. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that it's perfectly fine to be scared of intensive care units. They are a very scary place. And exactly about 20% of people that get admitted into an ICU will acquire an infection. And those infections are super, super difficult to treat. So mm. I work with phage therapy. And uh, phages, well, uh, they are viruses. But unlike things like measles or HIV or, hey, coronavirus, phages do not harm humans. They only kill bacteria. So, so you're, using, you're using viruses to attack bacteria that are infecting us while we're in the ICU. Exactly right. Have you heard of the enemy of my enemy is my friend? <laughs> yeah, well, I am, I am doing exactly that. Um, so far, the results are great. I have results in the laboratory and in animal experiments. So hopefully we will be able to start applying some of uh, some phage therapy in human cases. Yeah, sounds like there's going to be a, a challenging communications program there to make sure that families are able to you know, knowingly agree to you giving their family members viruses to help them. Oh, absolutely. I am in charge of trying to vindicate viruses. Not all viruses are bad. Some yeah. can be our friends. Yeah, I guess uh, we, we uh, at this particular time in the world, it might be a, a hard case, but we will get there. It's, a, it's an important area. Thanks so much for talking to us, Fernando. I love this uh, work. It's, it's so, it is so scary what's happening in ICUs around the world, and it's getting worse by the year. So it's good to see some unique approaches being, being tackled. Thanks so much. Thank you. Next up is Ariana Odo from the Monash Institute of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences in the CSIRO. Ariana, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Now, it's great to chat to you because you work in, in one of these areas I find fascinating, this issue of getting drugs across the, the blood-brain barrier, that, that part of the brain that we can't get things into, and you're trying to mimic this on a, on a silicon chip? Do tell. So yes, I work on organs on a chip, and as you just said, on brain on a chip. What's the problem? That usually all the fascinating drugs that we are developing cannot reach the brain. They're stuck in our blood vessels, but they just get, can't get across. That's because our brain has a very powerful protection mechanism, which is the blood-brain barrier. So now with this tiny chip that has about the size of a pen drive, we can have two blood channels next to each other. In one, you have a tiny blood vessel while in the other one, you have actual brain cells. And then you can mimic very precisely whether drugs can cross through. This is right wild stuff. Looking, this is wild. Also, it's wild. It's fantastic stuff. So you don't have to do it in, in animals. You can do it on the chip. Yes, that's really fascinating. So I'm not saying that animals are not useful, but we can really get preliminary results that can later on help us 
figure out whether the same applies to animals and then to humans. Mm. And presumably you can you can test very specific things because you're you're growing these materials on the chip. So you get to choose what they are, right? Exactly. So I can also choose whether I have a co-culture. So I have a different uh, tissue architecture, more complicated cells, or maybe I just need to do a quick test. So I just need a tiny blood vessel. Mm. Ariane, it's fascinating work. It's uh, anything where you take biology and pop it on the chip and make it work is hard. I get that because these things aren't always compatible, but it's really interesting. Thanks so much for chatting to us today on Einstein Go Go. Thank you. Thank you. Next up is Juliana Kader from Macquarie University. Juliana, how are you going? Can you hear me? Really good. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, I've been excited about this one because you work with sharks and I just love sharks. Long-term listeners of the show know that I love sharks. Tell us specifically, you're working on the Port Jackson shark. Why is that one of interest? Yeah, so the Port Jackson shark is is really common. It's all around Australia's harbours and bays. And people actually thought of it as a really lazy shark because it's most often seen resting and on the seafloor. But we know that trucks' lives are really complex, so we wanted to find out what was going on. Mm. And and what what does the Port Jackson shark do if it's not you know just hanging around? You know, it sounds like a very Australian shark, you know, just hanging around, <laughs> lazing around, not doing so much. But actually, we do a lot of stuff here in Australia. People just don't realize it. Yeah, exactly. Just like the Port Jackson shark, because we started using these Fitbit style tags to study them. So we put those on, and they actually function just like the sensors inside of your cell phones, but they're mm. kind of enhanced. So they're measuring it like 10 times per second. And after putting those on the sharks, we could see that they're actually just nocturnal. You know, they they aren't resting all, all at night. They get up and they get really active and out there. And they're munching away on urchins and things like that. So it turns out that they're really important for ecosystems and regulating everything that goes on in our face. Oh, excellent. Now, we've only got a few seconds to go, but are you the one putting those tags on the sharks? Do you have to do it? Yeah, definitely. We jump down, we we catch them holding the pectoral fin, and then we put on the tags and let them go and catch them about a week later. Fantastic. I love that. This is fantastic stuff. I just love the idea of catching these sharks and tagging them. Um, next, uh, do some great whites as well. I think it'd be good for you to get onto the great <laughs> no whites. No problem. No problem. <laughs> Thank you, Juliana. Great to talk to you. Next up is Sarah Gauchi from Swinburne University. Sarah, can you hear me? I sure can. Thanks for having me, Shane. It's great to talk to you. Now, we, uh, we well, this is going to be something we're all thinking about at the moment, but this relation be- relationship between our dietary patterns and our cognitive performance, I feel as I'm going downhill. What What's happening in particular with older adults in that space? Um, so it's not something that happens just in older adults. I think uh, what my research is particularly looking at is this relationship um, from middle-aged to older adults to see if we can try and use dietary interventions as a, a way to prevent the development of cognitive decline um, and uh, which leads to increasing uh, cognitive disorders like Alzheimer's disease and dementia. So what the research shows is that if you're eating a healthy diet, which pretty much makes sense, uh, your brain has is performing uh, cognitively better mm. than if you're eating an unhealthy diet, which um, is a little bit sad because most Australians aren't adhering to this healthy dietary pattern, particularly um, probably in times like this where we're at home and um, a bit nervous. Mm. So if we eat better, we'll be even smarter than we already are here in Australia. Well, uh, the research shows that if you do change someone's diet, um, you can uh, subtly change their cognitive abilities. Um, I do think it's a lifestyle um, life 
uh, style thing that happens across the lifespan. So changing your diet for a week might not have a big impact on your cognitive abilities um, later in life, but if you adhere to a healthy diet across your life, um, lifespan, uh, you might have reduced risk of developing cognitive decline when you're older. Yeah, well, I feel appropriately guilty. I'll work on it, Sarah. Thanks so much for that important health message. Thank you. Thank you. Next up is Ada Ada Bryden from Swinburne University of Technology. Ada, can you hear me? I can. Thank you so much for having me on, Shane. It's great to talk to you now. This is a really interesting area you're working on, especially at the moment, the idea of implementing telehealth counselling and support services for sort of residential age care um, members. What, what exactly are we looking at there? What, what are you investigating? Okay, so um, my research is looking on the implementation of a telehealth counselling support service for older adults living in aged care. Uh, So um, with my team at Swinburne Uni, we've launched a free national telehealth counselling service um, and we're aiming to provide emotional support to old adults in aged care. And my research will be looking at the implementation of that program to see how we can kind of like change things to overcome barriers and make it more uh, acceptable and sustainable over the long term. Yeah. I mean, what sort of barriers would you come across for that particular community? Are they technological or or engagement with the services in general? What sort of barriers? Um, so there's been, we've already kind of found a few things. So we've trialed the service so far on about nine aged care facilities just in Victoria. Mm-hmm. Um, with technology, we've found like that's that's like the classic stereotype of mm, older people yeah. um, not being able to use technology. We have found that we have had to kind of recruit aged care staff members to help set up their sessions usually. Mm-hmm. But once they're set up, they th- we've found that they've been accepted really well. Like the older yeah. people have been um, enjoying it and kind of finding video conferencing especially quite novel. Mm, yeah, I can imagine. Um, well, I, I know a lot of people in that age group who use it very effectively, and sometimes yeah. there's a few technical snafus at the start, but then they're good to go. Yeah. Now, are you recruiting people for this work? Uh, we are. So currently, the referrals are open for the service. So it's a free service, and it's available to any aged care, um, a person in aged care across Australia. Um, if you're interested in finding out more, you can go to SWIN, so swin.edu.au forward slash telehealth counselling. Mm, excellent. Well, that sounds like a great program, Ada. Good luck with that. I hope it's uh, successful. Thank you so much, Jim. Thanks for chatting to us. And uh, last, before we go to a break, is uh, one of two sisters I discovered. We have twins in our group this this year. It was accidental. Don't know how it happened. Emily McCall Gosden. Um, good morning, Emily. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Thank you very much. Now you're from the University of Melbourne, and you're looking at how we go about, uh, I suppose, using the detection of DNA in the environment to track species. Is that is that the goal? And and you're you're going after the the platypus, which is hard to see on a even on a good day in a zoo. Yeah, exactly. So platypuses are a really hard species to detect in. Um, in the wild, but the technique that we're using is called environmental DNA sampling, or it's also called eDNA. So um, eDNA is DNA that's from an organism, so it could be anything from feces or mucus or skin cells, but it's found in environmental samples, so the air, soil, but in my case, I'm looking at water samples. And we can actually go to a site, take some water out of that river or stream and filter it out. Um, analyze it later in the lab and work out what species are there. So I'm mainly focusing on platypuses. And that amazes me. You you must see so many different bits of DNA in a sample of water, though. Like uh, uh, if you if you pull out, I don't know how much you use a bucket, a cup. How many how many different types of DNA do you find? 
Well, you, uh, it depends on the technique that you're using. So one of the main um, ways that I'm looking at it is using a single species method. So you're using a, a genetic primate that is able to pull out just the species um, that you're interested in, so platypus. But you can also do a technique called metabarcoding, which is able to um, determine all of the different sequences that you have in your water sample. And you can compare that to a reference library where you actually know the species, um, their genetic sequences. Um, and then you can determine um, a lot of the species that you have in your different waterways. Look, it's, it's, really- it's absolutely cool. I love this because I, I suppose the traditional way of, you know, capturing these things, tagging them, looking at, you know, et cetera, et cetera, is um, it, it's just hard work with certain species. You'd never detect them at all. You'd never find them. So... Exactly. Mm-hmm. So, our, uh, the main project at the moment is called the Great Australian Platypus Search. So, okay. we're doing... Um, um, hundreds and hundreds of these samples across southeastern Australia. And to go to all those sites um, traditionally is just to go and trap them. And that is just a mammoth task that would not be possible with the normal method. So it really enables us to get this data across huge landscapes, which is really important, especially at the moment with the um, well, with bushfires and all these yeah. changing environments. We really need to know where they are. Yeah, that's fantastic. Thank you so much, Emily. Now I'm uh, going to take a break in a moment. We're going to talk to your sister in a moment. Is she a better researcher than you? You're both doing your PhDs at the same time. Who's going to finish <laughs> first? Well, I think it's a race to the finish at the moment. So. <laughs> you guys are twins, right? Yes, yes, we are. Twins, so you should finish on, finish on the exact same day, hand in on the same day. That's 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 story gold. That's the aim. Yep. Triple R. We've done the first ten. We're on to the second ten, and first up in that group is Sarah McCall Gorston from the University of Melbourne. Good morning, Sarah. How are you going? Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. And we just spoke to your sister. She said nice things about you. Uh, apparent, Good to know. Yeah, apparently you're going to finish your thesis a day after her, but you know, that's, um, that's okay. <laughs> we Don't, shall see. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> I love the competition. Now, you're working on um, the implications of vegetation, uh, vegetation communities under fire threat and the change in climate. Tell us a bit about that. This is something we're, we, I mean, we, we heard a lot about this last year and then with COVID, everyone seems to have forgotten about this stuff briefly, but uh, do tell, what are you doing? Yeah, so as we saw with the most recent uh, fire season, short-term weather has a big impact on the type of fires we see in one season. But the long-term climate um, is also really important for how fires may change. So under climate change, uh, the fire regime is also predicted to change. Mm. And as climate may be variable in the future, that um, variability will also change fire regimes in a variable way across our landscape. Mm. And, and do, how much do we know about what the effects of fire were before all of these changes, when it was more stable? Do we have a good feel of that, or was that a bit unknown as well? Uh, in terms of the effects on vegetation yeah, communities? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so a lot of Australian flora, so our plant species, are adapted to a particular fire regime. So when I say the regime, I mean the frequency of fire, how large they tend to be, how intense they tend to be. So a lot of species do require a very particular regime. Mm. And if under future climates we vary from that particular, say, fire interval, um, we may lose those species from that particular area. Yeah. Do we have a good feel of just about how many we might lose at this point? Uh, We have an idea of the particularly sensitive species. So, for example, um, species that require long periods between fires in order to regenerate. Um, if our fire frequency becomes um, much more much more frequent, we may lose some of those species. Yeah. Um, however, there's also species that are known to be quite um, uh, resilient to fire, but even under more frequent fire, 
there is evidence to suggest that uh, we may lose some of those as well, yeah. or at least they're becoming less resilient. Terrible stuff. We need to keep a close eye on that. Thank you, Sarah. Good to chat to you. Thank you so much. Next up is Kate Sukom from the University of Adelaide. Hello, Kate. How are you going? I'm good, thank you, Shane. Now, you work on that, on an uh, something that, you know, a lot of people are, are having breakfast at the moment, so we'll try and keep it, you know, appropriate. But um, with cancer patients, apparently uh, post-treatment, a lot of them end up with diarrhea, which is really serious. Tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, so um, a lot of patients up to 80 to 100% will develop diarrhea of varying severity during their treatment. Now, at the more mild levels, this can be annoying and a bit painful. Um, at the most severe levels, people need to be hospitalised um, mm. with quite severe infections like Fernando was talking about before. Um, and the key thing that we don't understand is why some people, even though they have very similar backgrounds and having very similar treatment, um, will develop really varying levels of diarrhoea. Mm. And is this, do you think, well, I mean, what's the mindset here? Is it is it caused by the treatment itself or is it the body's recovery from the cancer? Do we have a bit of a hint as to what direction this is coming from? Um, it's a bit of everything. It starts off as just um, in response to the chemotherapy treatment mm -hmm. um, or radiotherapy, whatever it is. Um, but then these treatments and these changes in the intestine can cause really quite um, severe changes to the gut microbiome as well. Now, when we have an altered gut microbiome, similar to after you've taken antibiotics, it can take a quite a long time for it to recover um, and change our gastrointestinal function for quite a while. Mm. And um, just finally there, I suppose this is something that, as you say, in some patients can be almost, I assume, deadly. The dehydration and so forth could be deadly in some patients? Yes, definitely. So as well as having quite a profound impact personally, it can have a really uh, big impact to uh, the health system as well because mm. people need to be hospitalised um, for quite some periods of time. Um, they can't eat or drink as normal because um, they've developed such uh, severe infections. Mm. Thanks so much for chatting to us about this, Kate. Uh, it's an important area and one that we don't hear about enough. Thank you. Thank you. Next up is Georgie Craig from the University of Melbourne. Georgie, good morning. Morning, Shane. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to talk to you. Now, you work on something that I think a lot of people are probably going to freak out when they hear about this, but the idea of how the sort of coating, that, that sheath around some of our brain cells is affected by when we grow up in social isolation. I know you look at this in, in mice, but I mean... This seems so pertinent at the moment to what we're all experiencing. Tell us more about this research. Yeah, yeah. So I think a lot of my friends and family have, you know, been hounding me for information about this because it does seem a bit scary. But I think it's important to remember that a lot of our experiments are really in controlled environments. Mm -hmm. So when we look at the mice, you know, they're they're by themselves in a house with little sensory stimulation. So although it might feel like we're experiencing a lot of social isolation at the moment. We still have a lot of avenues for stimulation. We can yep. get outside. We can have a Zoom chat. Yeah, yep. that's important to remember. So what's happening with the mice when they experience this to the, this part of the brain? Yeah, so with the mice, um, previous research has shown that actually the coating around the nerve cells, which is really important for nerve cell function, that coating actually gets thinner when mice experience social isolation. Mm. What we're finding is that that's potentially due to a production deficit in how these myelinating and sheathing coating cells are being produced in the brain. 
Mm. It's 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 fascinating, I think, um, to see that you know this because these cells in the mouse brain are very similar to the cells in in our brains, right? I mean, so you can you can extrapolate to what might be happening to to people in similar situations, yeah. Yeah, well, I guess that's the idea, but I mean, I'm hesitant to mm. leap to too many conclusions, especially at the moment. But yeah, there is the potential, I guess, that you know we've got to keep trying to be to be stimulated and to exercise a lot so that we can keep these cells being produced and keep the coding of our of our nerves in check. Nice and healthy. Sounds good to me, Georgie. We'll we'll all keep doing that as much as we can. Thanks so much for chatting to us. Thanks so much. See you. See ya. Next up is Alex Jamison from the Melbourne Neuropsychiatry Centre at the University of Melbourne. Alec, how are you going? Hi, Shane. It's great to be here. Good to talk to you. Now, you're looking at uh, one of my personal favorite instruments, you know, functional magnetic resonance imaging, where you can look at changes in the brain in real time and things that are going, but you're looking at how the connectivity in the brain is affected um, when we have depression. Tell me more about that. Yeah, so obviously depression is a really prevalent condition, um, but we don't have a good understanding of what does to the functioning of the brain. Um, so yeah, we use fMRI to investigate how the directed influences or effective connectivity of different parts of the brain are altered in depression, and then seeing whether we can use these parameters as predictors of how these people will respond to different treatments. Mm. So, so what sort of things do you see when you when you image the brain in that case? I mean, what what you know, how much of the brain is different, or or what sort of differences are there? Yeah, so looking at the, the functional activity, um, what typically happens, it depends on what task you're looking at, um, is you see differences in limbic regions. So these are regions that are important in processing emotions, mm-hmm. um, but also prefrontal regions that are important in regulating those emotions. Okay, and are you able to see the effects of certain medical interventions in, in those, those cases? Yeah, so there's been quite a bit of research looking at what different treatment types um, do to different parts of the brain, and it doesn't seem to be uniform. And even within one condition like major depressive disorder, there seems to be different subtypes that change differently. So that complicates it much, a, a lot more. Mm. Seems like, uh, again, with many of these areas, and we've seen this with you know, cancer and the immune system and so forth over the last couple of decades, we're just scratching the surface on the details and the complexity of a, a condition like depression at this point, aren't we? Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's going to be a lot of work going forward and understanding both how we categorize depression, mm. but also you know, how different treatments will influence those different categories longitudinally. Yeah. Thanks so much, Alec. Good to chat to you. Thanks, Shane. Next up is Lena Meyer from the University of New South Wales, the Canberra Space and CSIRO's Manufacturing Lab 22. Hello, Lena. How are you going? Yeah, I'm good. Thanks. How are you? Good. Now, you're working on 3D printed materials to be used in satellites. What kind of materials are we 3D printing? Yeah, I do. Um, Thank you. So, I'm basically looking at um, different metals and how we can combine two specific metals that are interesting for satellite applications um, to make our satellites more effective. Do we make satellites here in Australia? A lot of people wouldn't be aware of whether we do or don't. Uh, Yeah, we do actually quite a few. And just here in Canberra at the university, we build satellites um, in shoebox sizes. Mm -hmm. So they're called cube satellites. And we're um, just about to launch one this year and next year as well. And were those ones 3D printed or is this something that we're moving into? Um, so the satellite that we will launch next year, the whole frame for the satellite is actually 3D printed in Australia. So we have done that. 
And we have quite a few bits and pieces that, that go on these satellites that are printed from different materials as well. So there's quite a lot of application here, but also a lot of stuff that we can still step into yeah. in the future. Now, it, it all sounds easy, but what's the, the biggest challenge to 3D printing of these metals? Because I can imagine there are some difficulties. Uh, definitely. So everyone just assumes that because we can use 3D printing and we sort of have the design freedom, we can just do whatever we want. But actually what we have to do and what I'm doing in my research is that we have to understand how those materials interact first because before we actually mm. start to combine them and ju just mix and match on different designs. So there's quite a lot of challenges um, and signs to do here. Yeah, no, I'm sure it's a difficult task, but it sounds like we're doing some cool stuff. Lena, thanks, thanks so much for chatting to us. Thank you. Next up is Alexandra Hendon from the University of Hull in the United Kingdom. Alexandra, you still awake? You still up? Just about. <laughs> Excellent. Thanks so much for staying up. What is it, like 2 a.m. over there at the moment for you? 2.37 in the morning. <laughs> uh, now, you're looking at, at chronic wounds and in particular looking at ways of, um, I guess, mimicking these in silico, so not in the body but, but in simulated environments. Tell us about that. Yeah, so chronic wounds cause pain and discomfort to millions of people worldwide. And unfortunately, with our aging populations, they're becoming more and more common. Mm. So new medical devices and techniques are needed to be developed um, to aid the healing of these wounds. But there are currently no biomechanically similar models um, to test the new devices in, apart from animals, which we obviously want to move away from. Um, so my model is a computational model that can simulate a chron chronic wound in a physiologically representative environment. Mm. And and presumably this is something that uh, you'll be able to do all sorts of wounds. So, I mean, if we do this in biologically, it's one type, but it sounds like you could scale up to different types of wounds very quickly with this model. Yeah, so the model that I've developed is fully parameterized, making it easy to move and develop depending on the wound. So we're testing different wound shapes mm -hmm. and various other things to make sure the model is as accurate as we can make it. Yeah. Now, look, it sounds great. And wounds are something that, unless you've experienced it with someone you know, you don't realize how hard it is to, to deal with them, to heal them. They can be long-term, especially in people with diabetes. They just go on forever and they're just a, a nightmare. So getting better at that would be an excellent outcome. Thanks so much, Alexandra, for chatting to us. And thanks for joining us from the UK. We really appreciate that. Thanks very much. It's great to talk to you. Next up is Leah Bocum from the Flory Institute of Neuroscience and Mental Health. Good morning, Leah. Good morning. Now, you're working on why we lose our sense of smell with Parkinson's disease and whether or not we can use that as, you know, I guess, early detection. I didn't know that we lost our sense of smell with Parkinson's disease. What's going on no, there? No, most, most people in the community and, in fact, most people in the medical field don't actually realise that um, a loss of sense of smell or what we call hyposmia is actually more prevalent than tremor in Parkinson's disease. And it's, it's been reported in 90% of people up to a decade before you get a tremor. So it's indicative of the Parkinson's being much earlier than just the tremor. Yeah. Uh, do we lose our sense of smell as we get older normally? Or yeah, how so do you distinguish the our, two? Yeah. That's, that's exactly what my project is on. We're trying to work out a way that we can find a biological marker that detects Parkinson's-related loss of smell compared to just age-related loss of smell because it is very hard to differentiate the two. Yeah. I, I know with our eyesight, we lose various types and parts of our eyesight, you know, our, our contrast and uh, different ages. Is it similar with smells? Do I, do I lose certain smell types? 
And is, no, is not part, that we. No. Yeah, we haven't picked up any patterns like that. A lot of people have looked for whether it's certain um, groups of scents that we're losing, but it, it seems like it's kind of random. Mm. So how early would you be able to determine if someone has Parkinson's, you know, compared to our current studies, if you're able to do this? Uh, well, what we're looking at doing is looking at concurrent non-motor symptoms. So we're trying to look at the um, combination of anxiety, sleep disorder, and lack of, lack of smell and that could uh, manifest up to 10 years before. So ideally, we could be diagnosing up to a decade before, which is going to really change the way we run clinical trials, um, the way we diagnose, and the way we treat patients. Yeah, look, that sounds absolutely fantastic. I love, the, I love these pieces of research where we're looking at something very different and something that, as you say, the majority of the medical community probably don't even know about that's a, a symptom right there that people could be experiencing for yeah, years before Yeah, I think it's detection. incredibly powerful, and I think it's untapped. So yep. we well, need to sounds like it. A, sounds like a great PhD topic. Thanks so much for chatting to us today, Leah. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. Next up is Nick Shepelin from the University of Melbourne. Nick, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me, Shane. Good to talk to you. Now, you are working on uh, plastics in particular, 3D printing of particular plastics to harvest energy. Do tell. What are you doing there? That's exactly right. So my PhD focuses on making materials which can sustainably harvest energy from movement. So what I do is I 3D print engineered so-called piezoelectric polymers, which can take mechanical energy, for example, from footsteps, muscle movement, or even the heart beating, and convert that energy into electricity. The idea is we can have long-lasting and recyclable energy harvesters with no moving parts, which can power our electronic devices, reducing how often we need to recharge them. Mm. So this would be cool in particular for things that go inside the body, I assume, as well, where you you don't want that interchange of batteries or anything. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. So, for example, with pacemakers, um, uh, currently they need to be surgically removed approximately once every ten years to replace the pacemaker because the battery expires. So, if you can, for example, implant this type of material directly onto the heart and harvest that energy, you can then have a pacemaker that can uh, power itself over the lifetime of the uh, patient and then be recovered and recycled as well. Jesus, Nick, that sounds wild. And the heart puts out a lot of unnecessary energy by bouncing around in our chest as well. Nick, fascinating work. Thanks so much for chatting to us and good luck with that. I hope it works out well. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. Next up is Indy Hopkins from RMIT University. Good morning, Indy. Good morning. Now, you're working on something that is going to make people hungry, no doubt, this morning. This is the idea of alternative protein sources other than traditional meats. What exactly are we talking about? Yeah, so uh, my PhD is looking at alternative protein sources, and these include meat analogues that you'd find in the supermarket and also insects. Uh, for example, we are currently uh, recruiting for a survey wanting to know if Australians have um, any opinions and would they eat insects and what would help them change their mind? And uh, what sort of things factor into that mindset? I mean, because in some cultures, this is not that unusual. I've, I've eaten certain bugs when I've been traveling in Japan. Um, yeah. freak, freaked me out a little bit, but then they tasted real good. So it was okay. But um, what, what sort of things feature in the thinking there? Like what, what would make a person not want to eat those things? Yeah, so that's what the survey's trying to do. We're trying to establish what some of those barriers are. And um, there's obviously the uh, ick factor because it's not a common food source for us here in Australia. Mm. But there's also other factors such as accessibility or uh, people are unknown how to actually prepare them. Right, right. I think you should trademark the words bug bars 
because you'll be able to sell these protein <laughs> bars, bug bars. I, I said it first, but you can have it. Um, now, how do people get onto this survey? How do they find it? Oh, yeah, the survey um, can be found on my Twitter, pin Twitter, and that's just Indy Hopkins. Okay. Well, hopefully we'll get a whole lot of people looking up that survey for you and get get whether or not they're totally disgusted by this or whether they're okay if it's in a lasagna or something, which I suspect is probably yeah, going to be, be the case. Andy, thanks so much for chatting to us. Good luck with the work. No worries. Thank you. And last but not least is Winnie Orchard from Monash University. Good morning, Winnie. Thanks for hanging in there until the very last moment. Yeah, lucky last. How are you? I'm great. Now, you're looking at how um, how does becoming a parent affect our brains. I've got two kids. Yeah. Do I need to be worried? What's going on? <laughs> no, you don't need to be worried, Shane. Actually, looks like it might be a good thing. Oh, So, right. I'm running an MRI study that I like to call the NAPI study. So, it's looking at neural adaptations of the postpartum year. So, oh. NAPI. Yep. I want to see how the brains of new mums differ from women who have never been pregnant and find out what this means for our cognition, so like baby brain, our Mm. sleep, attachment, and mental health, so things like postpartum depression and anxiety. Yeah, and how much are you looking at that temporally over a period of you know the short-term post-having a child versus the longer term? Yeah, so this is looking at one-year postpartum, Mm -hmm. so we're thinking that that the changes of, of pregnancy in those early months might stabilize. And that by one year, we can get an idea of, of what that change is, is semi-long-term yeah. and what that might mean. Any insights into what you think you'll, you'll see there or you're not sure yet? Well, I'm hoping that we might see some cognitive enhancements. And typically, when we think about baby brain, we're talking about the, this mushiness of the brain in pregnancy and some memory loss that many women experience anecdotally. Mm. But what we can sort of think of is um, the postpartum period or when you have a young baby is environmentally complex. And this is generally considered to be good for the brain. Mm. So if you think about like trying to get a baby to sleep as sort of a brain training, because just when you think you've figured it out, it changes and you have to flexible and adapt and try a different way. So it sort of keeps you on your toes. And we think that maybe that bleeds into other cognitive functions and generally makes us more flexible and more resilient. Wow, fascinating. It'd be interesting to see what the outcomes are of this. Maybe yeah, it just yeah. And if, might just make us all more pissed off. <laughs> yeah, if you want to get involved, um, we're running this study at the moment. Um, and I'll give you $50 yep. to borrow your brain. Oh, very cool. How do, where do people find it? So you can Google um, Nappy Study at Monash um, or look at, up at Maternal Brain Research on Facebook. Excellent. Thanks so much, Winnie. And thanks for being our final member today on our 20 and 20 PhDs. Thanks for having me, Shane. Great to chat to you. Folks, uh, there you have it. There are 20 of our amazing PhD students who are just just beaming with enthusiasm. It's been fantastic talking to them. Uh, great pleasure for me. Hope you've enjoyed each one of them. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. With me now is Dr. Lauren and Dr. Crystal. Good morning, you two. Good to have you on the line. Great to be on the line via Zoom. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Now, we've only got a few minutes to go, but we've got some good news uh, we want to put out there, science news. Crystal, what have you got for us? Well, I uh, saw a little story this week, uh, which was a bit of ray of sunshine around the Eastern Bard Bandicoot in Victoria and how it's an example that for the first time, uh, we've been actually able to successfully rescue a species in Victoria from near extinction. Yeah. So, 
the, um, the Eastern Bard Bandicoot um, was considered extinct in the wild after a massive population decline in the 1990s, which was due to loss of habitat, but also due to the threat of foxes. We lost a lot of wildlife about 30-odd years ago. Um, and a breeding program was established and led by Zoos Victoria and has look at, looked at reintroducing uh, Eastern Bard Bandicoot back into uh, fox-free locations on three islands across Victoria. Mm. And so um, they successfully bred a colony of um, Eastern Bard Bandicoot and have released them onto Churchill Island, French Island and Phillip Island. And in all three locations, uh, the populations have bred like bandicoot. Fantastic. <laughs> it's such a great news story. And, and the fact that there are three locations too means like the chance of things going well, at least one of them is great, but it sounds like they're all going well. Yeah. So back in um, 2017, they released 67 uh, bandicoots um, onto Phillip Island. And this week they've announced that there's more than 300, uh, they think, um, on Phillip Island. And across the three sites, there's now more than 500. Wow. And that's a thing that back in 2002, Zoos Victoria only had seven breeding pairs. So they've gone from 14 bandicoots in captivity to now over 500 in three locations um, in the wild. So a great news story and a fantastic example of how we can use resources to rescue threatened species, which I think will be very important um, as we go forward in looking at the loss of habitat and wildlife from the bushfires. Because as you said earlier, Shane, um, we are still trying to understand um, the of uh, wildlife and wildlife and biodiversity loss from the bushfires earlier this year. Yep. But I think breeding programs such as this for the Eastern Bard Bandicoot really provide a little uh, success story about the little bandicoot that could um, and how if we uh, put these programs in place and support them over long periods of time that we will see results. Mm. Yep. And it's also a great indication of what zoos can do when they take that um, environmental sustainability path that Zoos Victoria have and have started doing work, not just with the bandicoot, but with Tasmanian devils and other many other species and how we can benefit from that when zoos are less like zoos and more like environmental sustainability agencies, which I think um, we're seeing more of. Dr. Lauren, what do you got for us? Well, I saw a new story this week that I loved because you remember years ago we did an outside broadcast from a synchrotron? Oh, yes, Our, I do. Yeah, yeah. And one of my favourite stories that day was how they used the synchrotron to look at artworks hmm. and they can use it to age artworks and, and they can use it for conservation as well. And so this week I was reading about the um, very, very famous painting The Scream by Edvard Munch. Um, which we all know, it's, um, you know, probably how a lot of us are feeling right now. Um, but it's that one exactly where, you know, his hand, the hands are on the cheeks and the big squeal. Um, but unfortunately, that painting hasn't been seen much in public for the last 10 years because it's so fragile. So the paints are starting to discolour, there's some flakiness, and obviously they're really interested in how we protect this really important piece of art. Mm. And so it's been stuck in a basement at 50% uh, humidity and very carefully controlled light conditions since sort of the, the mid-2000s. So this new study actually, again, uses a synchrotron, uh, uses amazing techniques. So if you're interested, have a look at the paper. There is this absolute huge list of what they did. But they basically used X-ray, they used non-invasive spectroscopies, and they looked at the painting itself. They also got samples from Edvard Munch's paint supplies so they've got a paint tube that he used to do the painting 
They've got dried paint from the same era, from different paintings and different painters. So they've basically taken all of these resources and run a whole lot of experiments to work out how we preserve these paints. Long story short, they've worked out that the humidity they've been using is wrong. <laughs> so <Wow. laughs> it's very important to work this out. So it actually needs to be stored at less humidity than it has been. So they're saying less than 45% is optimal for the painting. But the really exciting thing is that they found that the light actually wasn't that important. So it's the humidity that needs to be controlled, not so much the light, which is really good news for art lovers because it's a lot easier to control that mm. than it is lighting. So hopefully it might mean that we might be able to see it out and about a little bit more. Yeah, especially given people don't want to go to a poorly lit sort of um, location to look at these things. They want to see it. And you can't That's do exactly you can't do that right. with 10% lighting, but you can do it with 10% <laughs> humidity. In fact, the lower the humidity, the better for me. I, yeah, hate humidity. Well, exactly. Look, it's absolutely fantastic seeing you both. I uh, hope to get you back in the studio at some stage, um, but it's good having you online. Thanks so much for doing news. Thank you. And um, congratulations to all of the uh, PhD students who were featured on the show today. It was uh, just incredible to have such a wild ride through science. They're a great group, great group, fantastic communicators. Thanks, Crystal. Thanks, Lauren. See you again soon. Bye. As Crystal said, a huge thank you to all of the researchers that came on, especially those who came from a father from all over Australia and also uh, one from the UK. It's something that uh, we do a couple of times a year now, I suspect, because it's become very popular. But until next week, I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for listening to Einstein at GoGo. Remember, science is everywhere. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein at GoGo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein at GoGo's Twitter account or Facebook page.